Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person or catch our online gatherings by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church. We would love to hear from you. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Sunday. Welcome to week 37 in our series, Long Story Short. Now, if you've been with us, you know we've been taking a year to read through the whole Bible, and we only have two weeks after this one left in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament before we turn the page and start reading the Gospels. Now, the last book in the Hebrew Bible is Chronicles, which we will get into next week. But the book that comes right before Chronicles is the scroll of Ezra Nehemiah. Now, we kicked off this book last week with the story of Zerubbabel, leading a group of Israelites out of Babylon and back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the temple. He is followed some 50 years later by a scribe skilled in the law of Moses named Ezra who leads a group of people back to teach the people the Torah and to reestablish a covenant way of life. And then comes in the story, today we're going to come to a guy named Nehemiah, who also leads a reconstruction effort of the wall surrounding Jerusalem. So if you have three main stories with different leaders accomplishing three different but similar tasks, it can get a bit confusing. So last week, we summed it up with these six words. Return, rebuild, Renew, reform, recommit, regress. When we get to Nehemiah chapter 1, we have already gone through this cycle twice under the leaderships of Zerubbabel and Ezra. And so we're both excited and worried when we get introduced to the third leader in verse 1. But let's see how the story develops. Verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Now, these opening words do a good job of setting the stage for the story. We find out the who, the when, the where, and the what. First, the who. The major player in this story is a guy named Nehemiah, whose name means Yahweh comforts. Now, other than that, and some other details we read about within this book, there's not much background information about the guy. He's never mentioned in any other book of the Bible. Jesus never mentions him. The apostles don't talk about him. There is a tradition that says he was a disciple of Baruch, who was the disciple of the prophet Jeremiah, but even that detail isn't nailed down. So while we may not know much about him going into the story, we are going to learn something about his personal character throughout his story. Now, after we're introduced to who, we're told when. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year. Now, Kislev is the ninth month in the Jewish calendar, and it falls around our November, December months. And it's the 20th year, which makes you ask, the 20th year of what? Well, in the next chapter, we're introduced to King Artaxerxes, who is reigning, and it's the 20th year of his reign. Next, we find out the where. He is in the citadel of Susa. Susa is the administrative capital of the Persian Empire. It's also the main location in the story of Esther. But this is where the king would make all the important decisions surrounded by the most important people in all the empire. And so we wonder, 
what is this nobody Jew, Nehemiah, doing there? Well, we're going to find out soon. But what is the story going to be about? Well, as he is in the capital, his brother Hananiah shows up. And his brother has recently been to Jerusalem. Now, maybe Hananiah had gone back with Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple, or maybe with Ezra to teach the Torah to the people. But Hananiah comes back to the Persian capital. And so Nehemiah asks him how things are going. Primarily about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Maybe Nehemiah had heard rumors, but here's his brother. He can give Nehemiah a firsthand account. And so that's what Hananiah does. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. It is not the news Nehemiah was hoping to hear. It's not the comeback story we were expecting. The people are having a hard time, not just with the day-to-day life, but also with this shadow of shame, which apparently comes from the fact that the wall surrounding Jerusalem is broken down. The gates that once protected them are just ashes. And how does Nehemiah respond? He's heartbroken. He sits down, he weeps, and this goes on for days. He doesn't eat, he's in a state of mourning, and he prays to God. Now, this may seem like somewhat of a normal reaction we would expect when we get bad news. It's not like he just won the lottery and he's sad about it. Like, we understand bad news. We lose a loved one unexpectedly. We get laid off from a job. We get a bad report from a doctor. Brokenness, loss, sadness. And so we react accordingly. Nehemiah's reaction seems out of place, though, because of the timing of the news. The walls of Jerusalem were burned down 140 years ago. That would be like me running into the room in tears and throwing myself on the ground crying. And you say, Jeff, what's wrong? And I can barely get out the words, the president has been shot and he's dead. He's been assassinated. And your natural reaction would be, oh no, like what are we going to do without President Biden? And I say through my tears, no, not President Biden. I'm talking about Abraham Lincoln. Now you would think, I was having a bit of an overreaction. You know, Jeff, that's old news. It's not ancient history, but that was like 150 years ago. The walls of Jerusalem were knocked down by King Nebuchadnezzar about 150 years before Nehemiah gets this news. It's old news, but something new happens in his heart. His heart is broken by it. Something happens inside of him that starts him down a path that will give him the courage and the vision to do something big. But before he gets to work, he turns to God. Listen to his prayer. Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. 
They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Yahweh, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. So in his mourning over the situation, which we're going to find out is about a four-month process, he turns to God in prayer. He focuses on how God, how great God is, how loving God is, how faithful God is, how he can trust that God has a plan because what God has said would come true has come true. But now Nehemiah reminds God and himself of God's other promises of return. And he turns that into this boldness to do something about the situation. Now, I love the way the authors of the Bible can tell a story. We have all of this buildup and they wait until the last moment to give us the full picture. Nehemiah prays for success with this man. Uh, that's pretty nonspecific. What man? What is going on? And Nehemiah answers our question in the next sentence. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. Oh, okay. Like now things are starting to make sense. This is why he's in the capital of Susa, because he has to be near the king, because he's the king's cupbearer. Now, for those of us who don't have a cupbearer of our own, let's remember what their job was all about. Kings would often have enemies. And these enemies might not be able to beat the king on the field of battle, but all it would take is one person sneaking into the king's food prep team and poisoning the food or the drink to take, to, to take the king down without even lifting a sword. So what's a king to do? Well, they select a sacrificial lamb to taste test everything before it goes in the king's mouth. But this position wasn't just for anybody. It needed to be someone the king trusted. The king is putting his life into the hands of the cupbearer. And so often this person would become an advisor to the king. I mean, if you're willing to give your life for somebody, chances are they're going to listen to you. That also means Nehemiah was next to the king at every meal every meeting, every trip, every vacation, and why he is in the capital of Susa. And while the job had its obvious risks, the rewards were a lifestyle on the king's entourage. He got to eat the best food. He got to drink the finest wines while sitting in the finest building in the biggest city. But he's willing to leave that lifestyle because his heart has been broken for his people. He is choosing to leave the comforts of the kingdom for the burden of his brothers. He leaves the king's right hand to take the hand of those he shares blood with. But before he can go, he's going to ask for the king's blessing. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. So about four to five months after first hearing about the news of Jerusalem, Nehemiah is still so saddened by it that he can't even hold his head up to the point that people are noticing, most notably the king. The king is like, Nehemiah, 
Uh, you're usually this chipper, happy dude. What's up with you lately? So Nehemiah tells the king, his heart is broken over Jerusalem. And the king says, okay, what are you going to do about it? Like, what do you want? What do you need? So Nehemiah pauses, says a quick prayer, this, which is just a glimpse of his character and his priorities. And then he lays out his plan before the king. Let me go back and rebuild it. Now, nobody has been able to rebuild the wall since it was burned down 140 years ago. But Nehemiah, he has the passion, he has the vision, and he's working on the plan. What's the king going to do? Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy? And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So Nehemiah asks... And he receives. Not only does he get to go back, but the king is bankrolling the operation and providing military aid. But his return is not without pushback from some of the local non-Israelite leaders. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now these two guys are going to become the antagonists in the story, the main antagonists, continually trying to derail the project, make people afraid of rebuilding, attempting to give Nehemiah a bad name. But Nehemiah isn't going to be slowed down by any kind of opposition. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So Nehemiah examines and he inspects. He creates a plan. Then he shares his vision with the people. But of course, the opposition arises. But Nehemiah casts them aside and gets the people to work. Now, chapter three is a long list of people who worked on the wall. And it's easy to kind of skip over because of all the names 
But think about these people. Nehemiah probably doesn't have a skilled labor force who have expertise in rebuilding walls. They're farmers and merchants and priests. And I also love that it lists Shalom because he brings all of his daughters out to help in the hard work and they get some work done. Chapter four says they get the wall back to half height. But that's when the enemies start conspiring against the people. They start making threats. They start making fun of the wall that they have built. But Nehemiah has a plan. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember Yahweh, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Nehemiah gives his brave heart speech and rallies the troops. They get back to work and they are prepared not only for work, but for battle. They have a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. And I can hear Tim Taylor grunting as he pictures this scene, right? But it works. The people are able to finish the wall and do it in record time. It has been in ruins for 140 years. We're told in chapter six. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul. In 52 days, when all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. This is a great story, but it's more than a great story. It has meaning for us today because there are certain truths that were true for Nehemiah that are still true for us today. So let's talk about three. First is this. We can trust that God has a plan. Nehemiah's prayer at the beginning reveals his knowledge of God's story. God had delivered his people out of Egypt. He had put them in a good place. He had given them a good law. But if they did not keep the commands of the covenant, then God would remove them from their land. And that's exactly what happens. But Nehemiah also knows that God promised to bring them back, to let them return. And Nehemiah asks to be part of that plan, part of that promise. Nehemiah knows the plan of God and asks to be a part of God's plan. I think so often we ask God to be a part of our plan. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with that, but I think there's greater joy and success to be found when we listen and learn what God wants, and then we get in step with His Spirit and His guidance. Not only that, but we see God working through the circumstances to make a way for His plan to come to fruition. Nehemiah just happens to be a cupbearer to the king. That he has the ear of the most powerful man on earth who has the means to pay for the rebuilding and the authority to see it through. I mean, we can remember another story that involves a cupbearer who plays a pivotal role in bringing Joseph out of jail and into the audience of the king. And there's another detail in the story. When Nehemiah asks for the king approval, it says in chapter two, verse six, then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will your journey take? Nehemiah mentions the queen. She has no lines. She doesn't seem to play a major role in the story, but Nehemiah mentions it. 
Now, there is a couple of ways to read this. I think it's really showing how intimate of a relationship Nehemiah has with the king. It seems like the only people in the room are Nehemiah, the king, and the queen. So Nehemiah is in a very personal relationship with the king and queen. But there's another thread that this activates, because there's another story in the Bible that tells of a king and a queen in the citadel in Susa. And that's the story of Esther. Now, the timeline doesn't really line up for this to actually be Esther, but it could be the same seat that Esther once sat in. And if Nehemiah has been around for any length of time, he knows her story. Maybe even the words Mordecai says to her, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther was put in a place and a position at a certain time to accomplish something for God. Nehemiah was put in a certain place and position to accomplish something for God. And sometimes I I don't think we see our own lives through this truth. We may not be cupbearer to the king, but our lives can still have an impact. We can trust that God has a plan wherever we find ourselves. The second observation is this. We need times of rededication and renewal. Nehemiah and the people faced opposition. Their plan and their, mer- and their work was met with hostility. In fact, seven times we're told about how people would oppose Nehemiah, charging him with rebellion, mocking the rebuilding efforts, spreading lies and rumors about him. Like, how much does it take for us to give up? What has to happen for us to say, well, maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. (laughs) Now, there are definitely times when I think uh, we're doing things that God is trying to move us in a different direction. But we also have to be wise at times to see, is this God trying to move me in a new direction? Or is this an enemy trying to move me away from God's plan? Sometimes we need a brave heart speech to rally us back to work. We need brothers and sisters working next to us saying, I've got your back, you've got mine. We need a vision for God's plan in our lives and a community willing to work on it together. But we can't do it by ourselves or even just with the help of others because the third truth is we won't experience true reform without God's help. God's hand is all over Nehemiah's story. It's really hard to miss how often God is involved or mentioned. Just look at a few of these. I prayed to the God of heaven. The gracious hand of my God was on me. What my God had put in my heart to do. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We prayed to our God. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, We all return to the wall, each to our own work. Our God will fight for us. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. They realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. We may make plans. We may cast vision. We may get to work. But without God, it's meaningless. Because the major work God does with us is not what we do on the outside, but what he does with us on the inside. The book of Nehemiah ends on a major downer. So far in Ezra Nehemiah, we've witnessed the reconstruction of the temple, the restoration of the Torah, and the rebuilding of the wall. But in the last two chapters of Nehemiah, uh, he once again goes out to survey what is happening. And he finds the temple being neglected, the walls being dishonored, and the Torah being ignored. 
everything they had been fighting for in the past century. The people had regressed to their old ways so much that Nehemiah gets so frustrated. He fights some of them and curses at them and pulls out the hair from their beards. I wonder if he ever put that on his church resume when he was looking for a job. So, Nehemiah, how do you handle conflict? Hmm, let me tell you. Like, And then the last chapter closes with Nehemiah asking God to remember him three times. The last one, he says, remember me, my God, for good. And that's how the book ends. In fact, if you read everything in chronological order, these are the last words spoken in the Hebrew Bible. Your people are a bunch of stiff-necked sinners, God, but remember me for good. Not exactly the storybook ending we were hoping for, because this isn't the end of the whole story. At the end of this chapter, God's people still need reform, a restoration of their hearts, a kingdom restored. But the next prophet we hear is a guy named John, who's starting a revolution, preparing people once again. He's taking them down to the river and having them perform a symbol of repentance through baptism, shouting the words of Isaiah, prepare the way for the Lord. And then the Lord appears and John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The moment has finally happened. And as good as Nehemiah was for God to remember him, Jesus is a better Nehemiah. Nehemiah left the comforts of a palace to endure a new life with his brothers and sisters in Judah. Jesus left the comforts of heaven to put on flesh and become like us, his brothers and sisters in humanity. Nehemiah left the right side of the king of Persia to rebuild a wall. Jesus left the right side of the throne in heaven to reestablish a kingdom on earth. Nehemiah was willing to give his life by taking the cup and letting the king live. Jesus was not only willing, but he accepted the cup on our behalf, took on death into himself and allowed it to kill him for our sake. But he didn't just do this so we would go to church or we would stop bad habits or we would get things done on earth. He did this to make us new creations, new humans, reformed from the inside out. True reformation is not something we will experience by our own strength. It only happens with God's help. And someday we'll stand before the Father. The books will be opened. Our lives will be on display and we will face the fact that we are guilty in his sight. But God will look at us, not based on the evil we have done, but by the love of Jesus. And he will remember us for good. And that's good news. Good news worth celebrating. And that's exactly what we do each week when we come to the table. We celebrate the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. We celebrate the king who became human to establish a new kingdom and a new way of life. We celebrate him as Lord and Savior. And we remember and celebrate by breaking bread and taking a cup. These symbols celebrate what happened in the past. They remind us of what will happen in the future, but they also become a part of the process that God is working inside of us to reform us into the image of his son. So today, as we go to the table, let us remember what Jesus has done for us and celebrate that through his name, we can be remembered for good. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.